It was a tragedy that would shock everyone, first in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and ultimately nationwide. Anyone would look at Amber and Josh Hilberling and think these are two people that won life's lottery. Amber, the 5'5", petite golden girl from one of Tulsa, Oklahoma's most affluent families. Her stepfather, a prominent and highly successful plastic surgeon. Her mother, a beautiful and accomplished woman in her own right, definitely provided her a privileged, if not pampered life. Josh, a handsome six foot four former football star, was very well known in town where football is a second religion. Now, having joined the Air Force, he cut a striking figure in his full-dress military uniform. This couple was a head-turner. Anywhere they went, you just couldn't overlook them. Guys envied him, girls envied her. They were glamorous, popular, in love. They had the world by the tail. When Josh received orders to be stationed at Ison Air Force Base in Alaska, they were less than thrilled. They weren't married yet, and housing on this base was for married couples. Living girlfriends just didn't work. Off-base housing was not realistic, giving a location. While neither of the families thought a hurry-up marriage was necessarily the best idea, they weren't shocked when the couple held a quick courthouse civil ceremony so Amber could make the move with Josh. After all, they were very much in love and would let nothing keep them apart. So... A civil ceremony took place and moved together they did. Military life in faraway, isolated and unfamiliar Alaska with no family or friend support was not an easy time for the couple. But surprisingly soon, Josh would be honorably discharged and they would return to Tulsa. But yet the strain of that time in Alaska was clearly showing on the couple and to complicate the relationship further, Beautiful 19-year-old Amber was now well on her way into a pregnancy. What happened within weeks of their return to their beloved hometown, back into the cradle of family and friends, would start a chain of disastrous events that could not be undone and would change the lives of everyone involved. It all began June 7, 2011. The temperature was in the mid-90s, hardly a cloud in the sky. A man taking a short break outside his workplace, enjoying some fresh air, would later report he heard a noise, a crack of some kind, a faint crash of glass maybe, he couldn't be sure. But the sound was enough to make him look in the direction of the sound, and immediately something caught his eye. Something was falling from a unique, iconic structure in Tulsa called the University Club Tower. At just over 30 floors, it's the tallest all-residential location in the entire state of Oklahoma. A lone pillar overlooking the Arkansas River. The place to call home for high-rise living in Tulsa. But what is it that caught his eye? It was not something blowing in the breeze. No, this was bigger and it was heavier because it was dropping like a rock. The more he looks, he realizes it's a human body, and it's flailing, facing straight down, seeming to be riding an invisible bicycle as fast as one could towards the ground, a body desperately trying to grab onto something, anything, but there's nothing to grab onto in midair. Then a scream rings out from above, a scream 
from a broken window on the 25th floor of the tower. He can tell it's a female looking out as the body slams onto the roof of the 8th floor of an attached parking structure, 17 floors below. The window was the only wide open space on the entire side of the building because like all high-rises, the windows don't open. The sound of the body hitting the landing on that rooftop was unforgettable. He is hearing the sound of a human body impacting an immovable object at a speed of over 75 miles an hour. The fall itself takes between three and four agonizing seconds, but the death is instantaneous as the brain and internal organs virtually split open and just implode. That horrifying sight and sound is followed by more terrified screams from the female voice above. Why? Well, because she is seeing and hearing the same thing, but she is seeing it and hearing it from a whole lot closer. It is soon learned the screams are coming from the beautiful, pregnant, newlywed Amber Hilberling. And the body? It is that of her young, handsome husband, Josh Hilberling. How do you even fall from a high-rise unless you're on the roof? We've all been in them, right? The windows do not open, and they are thick and strong for just this reason. Unbreakable, or so we thought. Was this an accident, suicide, or something more sinister? Just how in the world did this happen? This is the case of the beautiful victim or killer wife. Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet, and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessi Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessi.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Let me give you a heads up before we start here. Before this story is fully unraveled, there will be yet another tragic death. So shocking, so unpredictable as to boggle the mind. You will be left dumbfounded. I know I was. 
And you and I may wind up contributing to the final chapter of this tragic mystery. The 911 call is played for all to hear. The entire local media pounce on the story with practically minute-by-minute updates as facts are released and rumors whispered about. That fatal fall from a Tulsa high-rise apartment. Investigators say 23-year-old Joshua Hilberling fell from the 25th floor of the University Tower. I just saw someone jump out of their window out of the probably the 17th, 19th floor of the University Club Tower apartment at 17th in Denver. The glass broke and he fell down. As to this death, a neighbor of the Hilberlings, Nathan McGowan, was in his apartment right next door as the entire event took place. Now, he would later say he had heard a verbal fight, a shouting match going on between the couple that had only lived there for about two weeks. And this argument would quickly lead to some other sounds he will not soon forget. McGowan would say he heard running like he had never heard before in that building, running coming from the left to the right towards the windows, and then a crash. Following that, a noise he will never forget, a sound of a woman screaming, no, no, no. Now, at the time, he said he thought maybe someone had pushed over a coffee table or a fish tank, and then it got completely quiet, eerily quiet. But the screaming would start again. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Over and over again. Amber leaves the window and is next seen rushing across the top level of the parking structure to Josh's body. She yells out for help right away to anyone who will listen. A picture of Amber is taken as she approaches Josh from an apartment a few floors up. The snapshot of her emotional state wearing a white tank top in sweatpants that later would become very important in this mystery. Amber kneels down to Josh and rolls him over onto his back. She picks up his torso while holding his head in her hands, then kisses his forehead while hysterically pleading with Josh to wake up. The immediate area around Josh and Amber, as well as the streets close to the tower, are in a state of pandemonium almost immediately. Sirens can be heard still approaching from a distance and arriving now from what seems like every direction. Onlookers gather on the eighth floor of the parking garage, both out of curiosity and to see if they can help. The first policeman on the scene was Officer Don Holloway of the Tulsa Police Department. He had arrived just after the EMTs who were trying to attend to Josh. Amber reluctantly lay Josh's head gently down and backed away so the EMTs could do their work. That's when Officer Holloway noticed the emotional woman was pregnant. He already knew the fate of Josh, but now his concern seemed to be for Amber and her unborn child. Remember I said it was 90 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. He gently pulled her away from the area, out of the hot sun, and just inside the doors of the tower. Now, Officer Holloway would describe the immediate situation. He said his first impression of what had taken place, and also Amber's state, while all alone inside with him away from Josh, was all very chaotic. There was medical personnel, fire department personnel, police personnel, a big crowd had gathered outside, and he saw Josh, the victim, on the ground. Now, Holloway's first thoughts were that he probably had a suicide here, or maybe some kind of accidental fall. Murder, he said, was the furthest thing from his thoughts at that moment. 
When he met with Amber, he described her as being very upset. She was crying, pleading for Josh. She was asking if they were working on him. Were they getting him back to life or not? He said she appeared very distraught. By this time, the scene was becoming out of control. People were everywhere, and Officer Holloway wanted to get the 19-year-old seven-month pregnant, now widowed Amber, away from there. He would walk Amber to his car and drive her down to the detective's division of the department where she and her grandmother, Gloria, who had joined Amber, could have some privacy. He directed Amber to a chair on one side of the table while her grandmother faced her on the other side as the officer pulled the door closed. He said he was really glad that she had a loved one in the room for support. Amber Huberling had no idea what she had walked into and had no idea it would be a long time before she would ever leave. Her husband was dead, and her life, her freedom, was about to be on the line. Officer Holloway would later be asked why he put Amber in an interrogation room. She wasn't under arrest, she wasn't about to be questioned for anything, but he put her in an interrogation room. She was under the impression that he was taking her there to protect her, to put her in there, to place her away from the chaos. I mean, after all, she's just gone through a tragic event, and she's seven months pregnant. But something happened in this room that would turn this entire story into a totally different scenario. As I said, Officer Holloway himself insisted that Amber was nothing but a witness to this. And when she went into that room, he just put her there so he could have somebody with her to help console her, to support her, to calm her. Why? Well, because she needed it, and it was a convenient place for him to put her. Officer Holloway was in the adjoining room typing up his report. And then, all of a sudden, he says, Amber started talking about what had happened, talking to her grandmother, Gloria. Holloway was pounding the keys on his laptop in the other room when certain phrases caught his ear. Those statements from Amber he heard would cause Holloway to start to record everything that was being said in the interrogation room. Now, neither Amber nor Gloria, her grandmother, were aware a camera was pointed directly at Amber and that once turned on would record every word, gesture, sound, and emotion that would come from her. Amber was distraught, understandably very emotional, and she was saying things now being recorded, things that would later come back to haunt her. Josh is dead. I wish I could just get it out of my head. Every time I close my eyes, I'm gonna see it for the rest of my life. And I just wanna know what was going through his head if he knew he was gonna die. I want you to be here. Just come back, please. <laughs> please. This is going to turn into a nightmare. I killed him. If I can read your mind here for a minute, if you're a logical thinker, you're probably saying, wait a minute, I've watched enough cop shows and lawyer shows to know you have to read somebody their rights before you can use what they say against them. And if you don't, then it's not admissible. 
you can't use it against them in a court of law. Well, that's not entirely true. Let me preface all of what I'm about to say by saying I am not a lawyer. But I have spent much of my professional career in the litigation arena functioning as a trial scientist, so I venture to say I do have a fair understanding of the system. If anything, I may oversimplify here, but basically know that there are exceptions to every rule, including the rule of law. And Miranda typically applies if you are questioning a suspect. But if someone just starts volunteering information, if you just overhear someone talking, then you're entitled to listen, and you are entitled to use what you hear. So you may also think, well, what about hearsay? That's good thinking. But again, there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. And one of those exceptions is what's called present sense impression statements. These are statements that are made immediately after a person referred to as a declarant, describes what they saw. They see something or perceive something. That's an exception to hearsay. It's so valuable because of its proximity to what happened. So present sense impressions mean something somebody says immediately after what they have seen. And in this case, it was right after Amber had been involved in this situation. So that was a present sense impression because it was so fresh. And this wasn't in response to questioning. She was volunteering this to her grandmother. Now, a second exception is what is called excited utterance, where someone is very emotional, and so they just blurt things out. Again, not under questioning. They're just blurting things out. Those are exceptions to the hearsay rule and therefore might be admissible. Now, a big question is going to eventually arise as to whether or not Amber had an expectation of privacy when she was in this room with the door closed talking to her grandmother. I say it will arise with the court because as you may be figuring out, Amber, this five foot five inch, seven month pregnant wife, is going to soon be charged with her husband Josh's murder. The prosecutor is going to say she decided to murder him by pushing him out of their 25th floor plate glass window and that she confessed as much to her grandmother at the police station. And they have the right to use it because she had no right to assume that her conversation was private. So just know that things are not always as simple as they seem. Prosecutors would argue Amber was not under questioning, so therefore had not been Mirandized, was voluntarily of her own free will, meaning she was not in any way coerced, making excited utterances and present-sensed impression statements to her grandmother. And as it turns out, the police regarded these as admissions against interest, another exception which allows admissibility. If you are saying things detrimental to your own case, confessions of any sort that are overheard, they can be used against you later. At the police station, the police are still observing and critiquing everything Amber is telling her grandmother Gloria. Gloria is starting to worry about the things her granddaughter was saying and how these things might be misinterpreted by police. Listen to me. He's in God's, 
He's Amber. Amber. He's in God's hands right now. He's not supposed to be No, there. he's not supposed to be, but he's in God's hands. This isn't fair. No, I, I'm a horrible person who could do that. Who could do that? <laughs> Push my husband and make him fall out the window. <laughs> I wish I could just go back and know that if I pushed him, it was going to happen. Amber, quit saying you pushed him out the window. Did you intentionally? No, okay. of course not. Okay, that's what they're going to take it as, baby. Listen to me. For your safety. I'm going to go to jail. Listen to me. You just don't say nothing until your attorney gets here. Okay? Don't, don't, and don't slip any other way. So they had turned on the cameras, and she moved from the category of witness to suspect, and her grandmother saying, you need to stop talking. You need to stop saying these things because they're going to think the wrong thing. Stop saying what you're saying, or you're going to be misunderstood. Stop talking. Now, she was giving good advice. What she didn't know was that that ship had already sailed. She was telling her, when they come back in here, when you talk to them, you don't want to be saying that kind of thing. Little did she know, they were already looking, they were already listening, they were already recording. As I said, the judge will have a very important decision to make later as to admissibility, but at the time, those statements convinced the police that this absolutely was no suicide and that they may well be looking at a murderer in the room right next door. Amber's family would later suspect this was Officer Holloway's plan all along. Right now, I'm wondering what you think as you're listening to this. Maybe, maybe not. But understand a police officer's job is to solve a crime, and they are always on the lookout for something that will solve the puzzle. They are always on the lookout for something they can base a theory on and then pursue that theory to see if, in fact, it's valid. So is this just a brilliant officer doing his job? Is this standard procedure to try to get witnesses to a room so they can be recorded without their knowledge? Amber wasn't under arrest. She had no lawyer present. She wasn't being held for questioning. She could have gotten up and walked right out of there. She didn't have to get in the car to go down to the detective division with him. She didn't have to talk to him at all. But she did, voluntarily. Is this camera allowed to be switched on? Can her private statements be used against her? Is this even legal? Have her rights been violated? Court's going to have to determine all of this. But for now, Amber was definitely moved from witness to a person of interest in the eyes of the police, and her words would continue to dig herself a deeper and deeper hole. Detective Jeff Felton was put on the case and immediately interviewed two witnesses to what had happened that day. Now, both were outside. Both saw the body dropping, and he confirmed in their statements that they observed Josh falling face first from the apartment. With things developing in the interrogation room, Detective Felton was informed that Amber may have admitted to pushing Josh, 
but he wanted to investigate the scene upstairs where the confrontation described by the neighbor took place. So now we have one, two, three witnesses that are involved, the neighbor next door and the two outside. And you have to add to that the statements that Amber is making to her grandmother, which are now on camera. Detective Felton had heard some of the statements Amber had made to her grandmother and been told about others, but he still didn't really have all the pieces. He didn't know the motive behind the push if it had occurred at least not 100%. He didn't know yet if this was a domestic violence situation between them or there was some innocent explanation. Maybe they were just playing or horsing around and she pushed him, he stumbled and fell. Proper procedure would begin with the detective making sure the upstairs apartment was secure because it was now a crime scene, a crime scene he wanted access to. He could work the scene where the body had landed but to get inside that apartment, he had to have a search warrant. Now, once that was achieved, the first thing he saw was what wasn't there. The furniture was all in place other than the obvious broken window. There was absolutely nothing that would indicate that a struggle had taken place. Only the pieces of broken glass from the now wide open window, which lay on the carpet below, The vertical blinds moving from the blowing wind seemed really out of the ordinary because, like I say, these windows don't open. The light fixtures close to the area, the picture on the wall, or anything else had not been moved during this event. To Detective Felton, it was very important, and he was beginning to draw his own conclusion as to what took place in that apartment on the 25th floor. Combined with all of Amber's statements to Gloria, her grandmother, in the interrogation room was more than enough for the police. They would place Amber under arrest and charge her with first-degree murder. Now, while the charge was later switched to second-degree murder, nothing could change the fact that the only thing which had Amber now sitting in a cell behind bars was everything said after Officer Holloway hit that record button. Detective Felton had come to a conclusion on what he thought took place in the apartment, but he did need to explain how a petite five-foot, five-inch, seven-month pregnant girl could move a six-foot-four, 220-pound military man even an inch, let alone shove him out a window. His answer? She caught him by surprise. He thinks she shoved him on purpose? because there was no other signs of violence. But how could someone so small push this big man out of a window? He says he thinks that Josh was messing with the television set and she caught him completely by surprise, just ambushed him. He went on to explain his reasoning in more detail, saying, if you catch someone off guard... A big body can actually work against them. I can only assume he means that if you catch a big body off guard and you get them falling, that's a lot of mass moving in one direction. That's why he leans so heavily on the surprise attack. He admits if Josh didn't want to go out that window, he would not go out that window. 
Investigators say the deadly plunge was the result of an argument between Hilberling and his pregnant wife, Amber. Police arrested Amber Hilberling and booked the 19-year-old on a first-degree murder complaint. A witness who says he saw the glass break that night says Josh came out facing forward. The state says that would mean he was pushed from behind and proves Hilberling's intent. Initially, she would claim it was self-defense, a battered wife protecting herself and her unborn child. Well, his family didn't believe it for a minute. His family believed that she was a murderer who purposely pushed the man she claimed to love to his death. They believed this was a case of domestic violence, but it was a case of her being violent against him, not the other way around. There were many discussion in the media with narratives being pushed and opinions being made. The witness claims that he saw the victim, the groom, come through the window as if he were standing up face out. There was a man, Mr. Rosales, who was repairing a window very, very close, and he saw this young bride. He said that she had bundled up anger when he saw her shortly after the victim fell to his death. He said he heard a loud crash, and then he saw him fall. Now, during the hour that Amber sat in the interrogation room with her grandmother, she made yet a few more statements that the police would take note of. Amber realized she wasn't the only person who had suffered a traumatic loss that day. Now, during the hour that Amber sat in the interrogation room with her grandmother, she made yet a few more statements that the police would take note of. Amber realized she wasn't the only person who had suffered a traumatic loss that day. Josh is dead, and I'm here. I didn't just lose my husband. Jeannie and Patrick lost their son. Zach lost his brother. I wonder if his parents know yet. They were right. They kept saying, if we stay together, I'm going to kill him. It's the call no parent ever wants to experience. Their absolute worst nightmare imaginable. A call telling you that your child is gone. On June 7th, Jean and Patrick Hilberling received just that call. Their son Josh was dead. Josh's younger brother, Airman First Class Zach Hilberling, was serving a tour in Afghanistan, and while he didn't receive a phone call, he did get the news of his older brother falling to his death in a horrible way. He learned it after logging on to Facebook. Josh was Patrick's firstborn son, and he was the world to him. He said Josh had a smile you would never forget, a smile that would just light up a room. His stepmother, Jean, called him Joshy. She was the only one he would let get away with calling him Joshy. Josh was always looking to help wherever he could, even help her cook. She would always remember his tender side. Patrick would say that most others would also remember Josh for his football. He thought Josh was so special on those exciting Friday nights. Zach said Josh was a phenomenal football player. That was his sport. That was his game. That was his first love. I can tell you firsthand how big football is in the state of Oklahoma. They're played on Friday nights and Saturday afternoons. From a psychological standpoint, we know that the number one stress in life is the violent sudden loss of a loved one. It's just not natural for parents to bury their children. It's supposed to be the other way around. 
As to the case, Detective Felton would continue to dig, continue to search for a motive why Amber would do this. He had decided she ambushed him, but why? And if there was any past behavior that would have predicted this behavior, for this he would have to go back to the beginning to examine the entire time from when they first met all the way right up to the very moment Josh went through that window. Detective Felton would have to go back to 2008 when Josh met Amber at a Halloween party. They didn't get together right away. As time went on, they did, however, keep thinking of one another, each wondering if the other felt the same energy that they felt. The girl with the cheerleader, prom queen beauty, and the boy, the football hero with the all-American prom king looks. And later, when they started dating... Josh, well, he just swept her off her feet. He was very attentive and would do all the little things to show Amber she was special. For example, she didn't know how to dance and was a little embarrassed, but always wanted to learn. So one night, Josh drove her to the park. He said, look, just put your feet on top of mine and follow me. Under the stars, Josh and Amber would share their first dance. They were two young people in love and Everything seemed right. The type of young couple you would see in a movie. But after just a short time of dating, Josh received his orders to report to Eilson Air Force Base in Alaska. And as I said earlier, a decision was about to be made by two young people just starting their adult lives. It was a dilemma that snuck up on both of them, but they were determined to stick together. They were in love. Nothing was going to keep them apart, so off to the courthouse they went for a quick private wedding. They would later have a huge reception for all to attend, but the marriage itself was rushed so Amber could follow Josh to Alaska. But did this couple know what they were getting into? Maybe the best way to describe it is that Amber was, well, she was used to a certain lifestyle. Her mother would later say that Amber had a routine of being pampered and groomed. And now you're putting her into a situation where she doesn't know a soul. She's living in cold, dark months of Alaska. They're living on a different level of income. And many of these moments are just sitting home alone, waiting all day for Josh to come home. But that wasn't all. Amber was pregnant. And her mother would describe it as a tornado. Everything swirling around, just too many things happening at once. Away from all their family and friends, Josh and Amber began to see they were not as much alike as they thought. In fact, the young couple could see they were quite different. Amber would describe Josh as the modest, predictable type and herself as the wild hare. The truth of the matter is things were just going bad. The verbal fights were happening on a regular basis and they were getting worse. Soon they would jump to the next level. Parents of both of the newlyweds were receiving emotional calls from their children, desperate to get out of the situation they were in up north. However, it wasn't geography. It wasn't Alaska that was the issue. It was Amber and Josh together. Josh's father would describe how he originally felt about the marriage and all the helpless calls he would receive from his son. To Patrick, the marriage just didn't make any sense. He felt Josh was making a big mistake. When Josh would call him, his son would be in tears and not know what to do. One time she had pushed him down the stairs 
down into the basement. Patrick could hear her up at the top of the stairs screaming, Who are you talking to? Josh would say he was talking to his father. He'd say, Dad, I don't know what to do. Patrick would tell him to leave. You just need to leave. Get out of there. So well before they came back to Tulsa, the domestic violence with this couple had already begun. In fact, one of them filed a restraining order against the other, and it wasn't little Amber. It was Josh. The order was filed on May 9th, 2011, just one month before Josh would fall to his death. The document read, She grabbed the floor lamp, pushed and threw the lamp at me, and busted me in the head, then ran upstairs saying, Good, I hope it hurts. Josh would receive 10 staples and 11 stitches from the object slicing his head open. This was just one more piece helping Detective Felton conclude as he did. If Amber was capable of violence just one month before, why would she not be capable of pushing Josh towards a glass window? Returning to Tulsa where they could have a fresh start and a chance to raise their son Levi. Yes, they had named their son. They named him the minute they learned they were having a little boy. Maybe this was all the young couple needed. Back to the city they know, with their families and friends for support. They moved into Amber's parents' house temporarily until they found a place of their own, a place where everything they hoped would be better. In late May, they chose a place they had talked about before, the University Club Tower. And one look from the 25th story window out over the Arkansas River would let them know they were home. However, in just a few weeks, Josh Hilberling would be dead, and Amber's name would be known across the entire country as the woman who killed her husband. For Amber, it seemed like nothing could stop what was coming. The rich girl pushes military hero out of the window of death. This narrative was in full throttle with practically every part of the media. She was sitting alone in a cell, seven months pregnant, her husband and unborn son's father, Josh, dead. And in the police's eyes, she had already confessed to the murder. Never did she think all the private words of emotion in the time of shock and immediate loss that she spoke to her grandmother would put her where she now sat. Words that the public would soon hear as well. For the rest of my life, everyone's going to think I'm a murderer. But should they? Are these in fact the words of a cold-blooded killer? Or are they in fact the words of a person who is exactly what she says she is? The words of an innocent person? Is the rich girl kills military hero just a jump to conclusions? A one-sided narrative being wrongfully pushed by the media? I always say, no matter how flat you make a pancake, it has two sides. And on the next episode, you're about to hear the other side of this pancake. Social media had exploded here, and it was directed at Amber with Facebook quotes, one of which said she should die. Facebook pages such as Justice for Josh and Put Amber Hilberling Away for Life would quickly cast judgment against her. One quote in particular would read, You disgusting piece of trash. After all the pain you've caused for your own selfishness, you go against the word of a man that can't say anything back. 
You were the aggressor, not Josh. You did this. I hope you burn in hell. Amber is about to face a charge that, if found guilty, could keep her apart from Levi for a very long time. But she's been offered a deal, a deal of five years. Will Amber admit her guilt and take the plea? Does the next chapter in this saga have a completely different version of what went on? One of repeated domestic abuse, of drug and alcohol issues, and of a five-foot-five, seven-month pregnant woman doing anything she can to protect her unborn son. And again, will Amber take the deal? What did she decide to do? Plus, we add one more witness to this case, the last person to see Josh alive other than Amber. What was Josh's demeanor shortly before he died? What was Amber's? Where was this other witness located? And what did he see and hear? You're going to find out the answer to that question and a whole lot more. I've been talking about this from the police perspective. I've been talking about this from Josh's perspective as a victim. But trust me, there is a whole other point of view here. There's a whole other story to tell from Amber's point of view on the next episode of Beautiful Victim or Killer Wife, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. And don't forget, someone else in this story winds up dead. Who, when, why, and how does it fit into this story?